mean, the biggest thing to try to simplify that took me that, you know, really whooped on me in the great recession was I was, I had a bunch of money out, right? Plus I had a bunch of debt, right? So when things turn and values literally tanked overnight, I mean, on paper, I was bankrupt every which way you look at it just was. And so, and by the way, a ton of guys did go bankrupt, right? Ton of my buddies went under, right? A lot of people committed suicide back then, you know, tons of people. And the only reason I didn't go bankrupt, it's not because I was any smarter than the next guy, man. It's not. The reason I didn't go bankrupt is because I was, I was doing business in numerous states. And what happened is, so my, my main town was, was Oregon or city, right? Or our state was Oregon, uh, the Portland metro area back then. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing into commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview dive deeper and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I'm your host, Jake Harris. Today, I have Cody Bugin. I actually pronounced his name wrong on the actual episode. I've always pronounced it as Bujan, the, I don't know, maybe that's the French or the, the, the Louisiana way of pronouncing it. I'm not even from Louisiana. But Cody Bugin, man, we talk about some amazing things, how you can and how he leverage uh, investing into some land deals, only $250,000 into the land deal and profit of over $5 million, no debt, no leverage, no anything. So $250,000 in, $5 million out in about two year time period. What a fantastic story that is. We also talk about when he almost went to prison for some IRS structuring and putting, basically he was putting money back into the bank and IRS came knocking because they thought he was uh, selling drugs or setting up a embezzlement ring or something, laundering money. So that is a fantastic uh, little nugget that you should look out for. And then obviously the way and his story and starts out of getting his high school girlfriend pregnant, how that made him have to jump into reality of working, becoming a tile setter and the, and the unions and the contractor union starting out. So this is, again, a fantastic episode that I'm very excited to share with the people of Passive Wealth Principles. And now, without further ado, Cody. My dude, Cody. Bujan, I am very excited for this episode. You're actually like, I, I want to say one of the first few people in GoBundance that I connected up with. And it, you did the thing that like I had some background in was dirt and land development. And like, I would talk to people and they'd look at me like I was, you know, had like three heads or something. And I was like, well, no, you buy land and you have to go this entitlement. And they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then I find out like you've been doing some of those same things for years. So I'm very excited for uh, this, this opportunity to dissect a little bit of that. For sure. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me, man. And you're right. I mean, the reality is even however many years later, 
and go abundance, you still 99% of the guys in the room are going to think you have three heads when you start talking about it. And that's what I love about the space, right? I mean, it's a space that's not highly taught and it's not highly competitive. And, and uh, you know, we're at Best Right, which is on my shirt. You know, that's our attempt is to teach more people the space because, you know, there's life-changing profits in the space and a lot of time freedom that goes along with the space because the deals, I can go make in one deal what, uh, you know, say a house wholesaler, for example, there's one of those on every street corner right now. And right behind them, by the way, are apartment syndicators. But, um, you know, nothing against that. I mean, but my point is, you know, they'll go do 300 deals, what I might make on one deal, right? And so there's a certain time freedom where you can be successful in all areas of your life instead of just one you know, through the model. So, but we can get into whatever you want to get into, but today, yeah, buddy, no, so. I, and you know, I'm very interested to dive into this deeper because I think it's such a unique niche of, of real estate. Um, for me, I, I know you a little bit and we've got a chance to, uh, spend some time together, but I, I think your, your backstory, your, your history is, is very, very interesting. So, the tile guy, you know, the, the guy that, you know, the, I mean, you, you finished high school, yeah. right? Like high school. Kind I of hardly, like, but I, yeah, I did. Yeah. So tell me to, for the, for the audience, you know, give us a history uh, of, you know, how does uh, Cody become a dirt dog millionaire? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. You caught on to something as far as one of my titles I'm thinking about the, uh, well, first off, let me say, I, I'm trying to build a brand of trust. Okay. I think trust is the foundation of any and every relationship. And I quite frankly think nothing sells better than trust either. Uh, nothing is more powerful at the negotiating table than trust. And so the reason I'm telling you that story is, is as I, you know, I'm interviewed or people, I spend time with people. I have three words that come to mind of how I'm committed to presenting myself. I'm actually intentional about this, uh, is being authentic, transparent and vulnerable, right? So I'm going to be real to who I am. I'm going to be transparent as far as anything you want to know, bud. like nothing's off limits. And then, and then lastly, it just be vulnerable, right? Like be willing to, to, um, you know, there was a group I used to be a part of called EO entrepreneur organization. And what they talk about is the bottom 5% and the top 5%. So the 90% in the middle fucking means nothing. It's worthless. So what I mean by that is share your worst 5% and your top 5% because that's where the magic happens and that's where you can really impact lives. And so, um, so as far as my backstory, just real quick, I'll try to keep it simple. I'll just hit some, I'll just hit some points for you. Right. Cause I mean, I could start rapping about my, you know, my history, but I'll just start off by saying I grew up in a small little town called Damascus, Oregon, grew up in a household, um, where, uh, not the best mentorships, not the best, um, leadership or examples set for me. You know, a lot of, quite frankly, with my father, he taught me a lot of what not to be which I mean, he still taught me something, but it, you know, it was more watching him it made me want to pivot in a lot of different directions opposite of him. And so, you know, when I was in a young age, I, I, one thing I knew I wanted to do was pivot. I wanted to change the legacy of the family. And, uh, what happened is, uh, in high school, got my high school girlfriend pregnant. And, uh, so I, I got, I graduated in what June, June, and I got, married in August and I had a baby in September. So what happened is as soon as I graduated high school, I originally was going to go off to ASU, do the whole party thing, right? Screw off. Didn't know quite frankly how I was going to pay for it, but the, and then I just, I, life responsibilities hit me and I, and I, and I took ownership for, you know, this young lady that I, you know, got pregnant and, uh, it was my fault. I'm the one that didn't pull out. So, uh, <laughs> so anyways, I went right into the flooring union, right out of high school, brother, just right out of high school. And the reason I did that is because after three year, three months in the union, you qualify for health insurance. And so it was the best way I knew how to be able to pay for my baby boy that was on the way. So I was in that flooring industry. I ended up moving out of the union. Long story short, I was in that industry for five years, did amazing things, ended up running a company. We were one, 
probably the fastest growing company in the industry in the state. But I got to a point where I either needed to own a store because I'd kind of capped out and I was super driven, hungry, motivated, and became a workaholic, quite frankly, which, um, you know, there's a lot of, I, uh, I'm not doing that. I, I, I learned my lesson on being a workaholic. Let's just say that that was a huge failure. So I ended up, do I want to own a store or I need to go do something different? And a lot of my clients were builders, developers, and, and one thing led to another and linked up with another guy. And, and we went and started land development and home building in 2002 and then um, made a lot of money, did a lot of great things. Our partnership only lasted two years. And then I rolled on my own and then 07, 08 happened and, and I lost 90% of my net worth. You know, back then, you know, give or take, you know, I was, let's see, in 2006, I was worth, I was 28. Yeah, 28. And I was worth about 20 million. And by the time I was 29, I was worth probably about 2 million. And um, I'll tell you, I learned a lot more losing it than I ever did making it. You know, I could have killed it during that downturn uh, if I would have known how to go after the opportunity, but I was a snot-nosed punk you know, wealthy, living in a mansion, had a Ferrari, all that bullshit. And, uh, and I didn't have any mentors in my life. I didn't have any, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't doing courses. I wasn't doing masterminds. I wasn't going to events. I wasn't reading books. I mean, what the hell, what do I need all that shit for? And so, um, so what happened is, is that, you know, I mean, I made it through it and, um, but, uh, at the end of the day, man, what a huge missed opportunity. I don't believe in regrets, but a lot of wealth was built during that downturn. Anyways, 2011 hits. Uh, oh, and by the way, during that downturn, I bought into an online health and fitness company that I ended up running for several years. We sold it in 20, but or 19. But but what ha- one story I really want to tell you. So I learned through I learned responsibility through getting my high school girlfriend pregnant. Right. I learned what a dollar's really worth or how to view a dollar when I lost it all in 0708. And then um, one of my pet peeves is the victim mentality. And, uh, and then in 2012, 13, 2012, 13, I became a hick, hypocrite as far as the victim mentality. And, and what I mean by that is, is that from, I went through about a three-year phase in my life where about two and a half years where I was hitting the bottle three, four nights a week, escaping reality, getting hammered. And it's because I felt sorry for myself. I was trying to escape. And the reason I felt sorry for myself, and this will be, I get a kick out of the story now, is is that when the market crashed, I started selling all my toys, right? Whatever I had. And it was all after-tax dollars, blah, blah, blah. But I started having everybody pay me in cash because when all that was going down, we didn't know it was on the other side. Like, I saw my, you know, my wife and we were like, let's start stacking some cash. So, so I stacked some cash into my safe. And when the market started coming back in 2011, 12, I, I was like, I need to get this cash back into the system because I started to get back into real estate. And, um, and the guy's like, Cody, don't go. I, I don't remember how much cash it was. So let's just say, I think it was around hundred grand, not a ton, but enough cash to you know, get someone's attention. And so a bunch of my buddies were like, Cody, don't go put a hundred grand cash in the system all at once right? Like IRS is going to be all over you, right? Where did that cash come from? And so they're like, do small deposits in numerous banks, keep them below 10 grand. And that's how you get back in the system. Well, lo and behold, probably, I don't know how many months later, my wife calls me when I'm at work and she says, Cody, you need to get home. I'm like, why? She's, she says, well, there's two IRS agents at our front door. I'm like, what? I'm like, the IRS sends letters, not agents, you know? And so I get home and I'm being prosecuted for something called structuring. And so structuring is a law that's in place to catch criminals that are trying to basically embezzle money. It's drug money, right? And so uh, it's a law that whether you know it or not, it's you, you, you commit the crime, you commit the crime, whether you know it's a law or not. So, so what happened is I went into a victim mentality at that point because I quickly found out through hiring the criminal attorney and all that shit that I faced five years in prison. And so one thing led to another, we're seeking out the feds. I hate negative energy. So we're chasing them actually to settle the deal. We ended up settling it out. And, um, and so the deal was made is, is that, um, you know, I took a misdemeanor 
and they got to keep the cash. Even the agent acknowledged that they saw that it was all after tax dollars, meaning that because I had bills of sale for everything I sold, I had a journal, a log of every cash deposit I made it in my safe. Everybody can see that it was after tax dollars, but it's irrelevant. The crime was still committed. And so, so you know, I mean, I, uh, that, um, I really came to realize, I mean, when you go through something like that, it's hard to relate to people that have been through really tough things unless you've gone through them yourself. And, and out of losing my money, out of getting my high school girlfriend pregnant, that right there is that I believe the Lord is building me. He's making a warrior out of me. He's creating life experiences in my life to make me stronger. He's preparing me for battle. And that particular life experience, that particular battle made me stronger than any other battle I'd been through. And, and I'm grateful for that, right? Um, because, you know, those that have been through tough stuff, one, I can relate to a lot of them, but also it is hard to shake me, or I should say it's a lot harder to shake me now than it was before that. So that blah, 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 whatever that was, we settled that deal in 15, 16, and I've been doing my land deals. And, and then, um, you know, where we're at today is, is, I started teaching what I do in 2019 through Vestrite, which is on my shirt. Um, I have my company, Allied Development, which uh, beginning of 2021, I ended up getting out of the way of that company. Um, I have a CEO in place and a headquarters in Dallas. I live in Scottsdale slash Paradise Valley, Arizona. And uh, my business is exploding. And it's because I finally humbled myself to realize I needed to get out of the way. And I needed um, the biggest thing holding my company back was me. I was the biggest thing. We had huge opportunity, huge potential, and it was me. And uh, that was a humbling experience. I realized I had to separate Cody Bugen from Allied Development. Those two entities were, those two brands or identities were very much tied together. I was the company, the company was me. As soon as I split that apart, I got out of the way in my company. We have just, we have multiplied. And we're doing deals all across the country now. And um, I'm focused more on where my giftings are and, and, and life's good, man. And I have opportunities to get on podcast interviews like this with guys like you. So uh, it's, um, it's been really fun to, to have an impact and, and to be able to um, be a part of people's lives and, and spread my circle of influence, I should say. Man, that is... Uh... You hit on so many things that I want to talk about. I mean, there are so many uh, key nuggets, and, and in fact, that we've got to, to chat about over over the past. And I want to, I want to put a note in, in a couple of those. Obviously, the the time and think about you know you know the the IRS agents and settling and doing some things like that. Also, getting out of your own way as far as you know, taking kind of uh, how Cody was the the you know, the dam or the, 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 you know, whatever, uh, linchpin of your organization and, and everything pivoted off of your, uh, ability to, to grow that. And then just by getting out of the way, but what I wanted to dive back into was we, we shared a story about your first land deal and about your mentor that you reached out to. And I, I just think there was a, there was a lot of value in that because of some of the things, and maybe you don't even exactly remember the, the, the story, but uh, I'd like to hear as far as the first land deal that you did, and you were driving by this piece of parcel and stuff, and then how oh, you reached okay, out. I'll so, tell you that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and that, that gentleman at the time, he wasn't a mentor of mine, but he was a big name guy in town, right? And he, everybody know who he is. He was a big time, he was one of the highest producing real estate agents in the city. Okay. So everybody knew him. His name was on buses, bus benches and billboards and blah, blah, blah. So what happened is this is when I was still in the flooring industry at a company called McAdam. And, you know, I was kind of rolling. I was, you know, running that company at the time. And, and I wanted to buy a piece of land to actually build my personal home on. And so uh, and there was this piece of land I used to drive. I drove by all the time and there was this shitty old little sign out front. It was kind of like a for sale by owner sign. It looked like it'd been out there for 20 years, right? Completely weathered. So I called this guy, Brian. I'm like, hey, Brian, you know, my name's Cody, blah, blah, blah. Here's who I am. I, you know, I'm looking for a piece of dirt, you know, in the area to build a house. And you, you have anything you'd recommend to me? He's like, Cody, 
there's a piece of property right around the corner from where I personally live that that's the piece you should go buy. Go buy that piece. I said, okay, okay, thanks, Brian. So I don't know, I called Brian back weeks later, maybe a month later, I don't remember. I was like, hey, Brian, so I bought that one, you know, that was really fun, like doing real estate is a black, like you got any others? He's like, dude, who's this shit snot nosed kid? Like, cause he kind of find out he was thinking about buying it himself. He wasn't taking me serious. And, and that's kind of how his and I's relationship took off. And because then eventually he saw where I was at McAdam, he saw, saw where I was kind of hit a ceiling and I needed to do something different. And then that's when he asked me if I would partner with him and we could go do, cause he was an agent and let's go do land and, and build homes together. And then that was, we're still buddies to this day. I just talked to him the other day. And just cause you're buddies, by the way, doesn't mean you make a great partnership just to be clear. And so I've learned that a few different ways. But yeah, that's kind of how I, that was the kickoff for that relationship, which then put me into the space I'm in. Yeah. And that's, I mean, to me, it was a, the symbol of just taking action. And, 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 and that's what I love about you is that like, you're, you're an action guy. Like you just, you know, you don't necessarily think about the consequences. Sometimes you're not <laughs> overanalyzing your things. You're like, no, I'm not pulling out. Like, this is awesome right now. Oh, wait a minute. Now I have to deal with the, the other side of that. But the, the reality is, is that by taking action, it launched you into this new career of life. 100%. 100%. And I'll say like action's never been a challenge for me. What I have found out though, like I'd much rather, I mean, they, what do they say that a plan you take action on is better than the perfect plan that you don't take action on basically. And so I probably take action, some just being frank, to a fault. And I'm learning that as we're building out our corporation, like with all these employees and this team, like I want to, you and I were talking about a minute ago, like, you know, I want to go implement it all right now and it's just not effective. Right. And so it's knowing how to prioritize what to take action on first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. But yeah, I mean, action, I mean, we've all heard it a million times. I mean, I really don't, I mean, those guys that are sitting on the sidelines, I mean, it's, if you're not in the game, it's kind of irrelevant what you have to say, to be frank. I mean, you need to take action and get in the game. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things. I've, I've said it, you know, uh, as a, a podcast guest, as, you know, uh, as a speaker. And just like, just go do shit. You know, because part of the thing is, even if it's the wrong direction, you can discover that like, wait, this is wrong. I don't like this. That's better than sitting there and be like, wow, oh, at one point I'm going to go do stuff. And uh, to your point, of the mistakes and, you know, the call them mistakes, not really mistakes, but they're your, your path in life, you know, that you and, yeah. uh, and trials, I've, tribulations. Yeah. I've yet to find or meet a person that, that has lived that perfect life. I didn't meet Jesus. Uh, you know, I, I have faith that there, that he exists and, and he would, there's higher powers, but I have not met anyone on this planet that did not have a, a slew of failures in their past and really being that, that journey. So I'd like to dive into, you know, learning the value of the dollar and, you know, you, you know, the, the downturn of that. So you're making a bunch of money, you're doing and living the quasi American dream, big house, fast cars, you know, beautiful family, everything's great. And then it's not. So like, if you could dive into a little bit of like what that was like when the world was financially kind of turning for you, what were some of the mistakes that you had made during that time period that obviously when you're in retreat, it's hard to be proactive, to be building wealth. And so I, I asked that because I think that's certain, certainly valuable, especially as maybe we're coming into a recession. I think technically we're in a recession. It just hasn't been announced yet. There's ways in which you can now really build wealth when there's a downturn, but if you're not, you know, uh, getting kicked, kicked in the teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And luckily, you know, we're not leveraged like we were back then. So it's completely different, nor do I think we have the great recession coming. I do think we are in a recession right now. It's just, everybody's a little late. I mean, we just like, you don't know where the top is or the bottom is until it's too late. You don't know you're in a recession until you're after you're already in one. But so remember, I'm a, I'm a 
guy that grew up in a small little town. I'm a meat and potatoes guy, simple words. We got our first street light in our town when I was in high school, right? So I don't overcomplicate shit, all right? The most valuable thing, so here's the thing, okay? So I was in my 20s, had all the nice stuff, living the American dream, but my kids didn't even know who I was, right? I didn't have a successful relationship with my wife, right? I was a workaholic. So yes, did I pivot and did I do a lot of the things in a successful way that I saw my father not do? Yes. Okay. But I made other mistakes. Was my father a workaholic? No. So I didn't learn from, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't learn to not be a workaholic by watching him be a workaholic. That was one of the things that he didn't struggle with. So I didn't learn that. I learned that through my failures is that, you know, when you start losing it all, it's just like when people say, when you're on your deathbed, are you going to say, I wish I would have made another dollar? No, you're not. What I learned through all of that is literally if your goal or your dream is related to the dollar, I would suggest you find another goal or dream, right? Is that literally all money is, is a tool. That is all it is. It's literally a tool. And so, so I've, I've been able to rebuild my relationship with money. And so even with the times we're going through right now, there's people around me where, um, they become paralyzed and they're, they're, or even before this, you know, what we're going through right now, they were scared to take risk. Okay. And, and, you know, and that's fine depending on what the goal is. Right. But, you know, if you have, um, I just a lot of times I think people's, what their vision is relative to what their risk tolerance is, they don't match up. Okay. You don't, you don't become, you know, get into a certain position without taking risks. Now, with that said, guys like me that went through the Great Recession, we often are risk. We don't have a high tolerance for risk because we don't want to lose it all again. But what if you just restructured the model? What if you took risk, but they're calculated risks where your downside is protected? Right. And so what I've done over the years, I've created this very unique business model within the land development industry where I can take risk. I can play in a risky industry, but I've hedged my bets by by protecting my downside. And, and I can explain what that is. But my point is, if we are in a recession right now, we have no risk. Well, Lord willing, Lord can decide to do whatever he wants. But as far as what we see on paper, we don't have a lot of exposure or risk to the market. And, and um, it's because of how the model's built. So, you know, I'm mean, kind of ramble at this point, but I just know that, um, you know, my joy, my happiness, you know, I'm getting ready to leave next week and go, you know, out of town for over a month. To me, that's exciting. Those special moments with my family, those, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual guy. I think, you know, that a man of faith, uh, you know, one thing that's popped in my head is I, you know, just cause I want to drop this, you know, with you on this interview is this thing of this, one of my shirts, it says, believe action faith. And, um, one of the things that really hurt me in the last downturn was, is that I wasn't exercising my faith muscle. If you try to control everything, you're fucked. You're done. Okay. You cannot control everything. Is that you need to believe in yourself and whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. You need to take the action to make that take place. But at the end of the day, the rest is up to faith. You're not in control of everything. As soon as you try to control everything, you're done for. Is that you get up every morning, you hold your field, but at the end of the day, the vegetation's not up to you. It's just not. And, um, and I, you know, I lost a lot of years probably off my life and, and hair, as you can see, going through that downturn because I was, I just, I was trying to control the outcome of everything. And it just, it's just not possible. It's just not. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities 
due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guest on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I think that's a great little nugget is that, you know, there's only certain things that you can control. You control your effort, you know, what you're putting into it. And so that there's certainly a very valuable thing that you mentioned about being like, you know, workaholic. So you're away from your family. So you don't have those relationships. Um, and, and definitely my, my own past is, is very much, it's easy to go get sucked into the work you know, hedonic treadmill because you get the accolades and you get the the money and you get all these other things. But then like you, uh, I think the losing everything in the, the subprime meltdown changed my relationship with money. It changed my relationship with understanding where I was myopically focused, 80, 90% of my focus was on money. And then I realized like how little of my life, it was actually important. And so I, I actually hope that everyone becomes wildly successful, makes lots of money so that they realized that it's not about the money at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and bullshit you. I mean, money's real. I mean, it's the fuel. I mean, money's real. Money, money's a tool, though. At the end of the day, it's a tool. If you want to go do something cool, great. Use the tool. Right. If you want to go have a life experience, great. Use the tool. But if the money itself is the life experience, money is literally a tool. As soon as you, you, you think the life experience or the joy is in the actual money, you're going to set yourself up for disappointment. OK, like it's just a tool to go do some cool shit or some have some great life experiences. Right. But so, I mean, anybody that says, oh, money doesn't bring happiness. Yeah, that's I'm sure money alone, but I'm not going to sit here and say money doesn't create opportunities for you to go do some, some really cool shit. By the way, I don't even like the word happy. It's, it's just, I'm not a fan of the word happy, but um, happy is a very temporary, empty word. At the end of the day, what we're all searching for, and this is what you'll never find in the dollar, what we are all searching for, whether you know it or not, is fulfillment. Okay. That's why my personal slogan is purpose, impact, fulfillment. And by the way, you will mark my words. You will never find true fulfillment without having an impact, period. Right. You won't. And so, you know, the, when you start thinking about fulfillment versus happy, it totally changes your perspective because you got to start looking at all the elements of life because to be truly fulfilled, You've got to have all your pillars of life above the line, right? Let's say you have a chart and up here it's success and down here it's failure and there's a line in the middle. The goal is you got to keep every one of your pillars up above the line in the success section, right? To me, that's when fulfillment starts happening. And by the way, you're never going to have all your pillars of life clear up at the top, just killing it, okay? Because that's called perfection. And the only person that's perfect is Jesus. So don't try to have, don't be trying to, nail every single one of them at once, having them all at tens, because it's not possible. But I do think it's possible to keep them all above fives, right? Kind of above the line. So, yeah, that's, um, you know, like you said, so there's, I mean, there's all those different pillars in life. So money is a pillar, you know, your income that you're making, because you got to, you know, feed yourself, you got to keep the lights on. And, but what it, in the reality is, is it's one of one sixth, of what makes up your life, you know, or one tenth or however one fifth. So what's the point of having that at a 10 if all the rest of them are below five, right? Like, dude, you just failed beyond belief. And I think that's the 
the old school or traditional way. And actually someone uh, had had mentioned that about Donald Trump. Donald Trump, when they asked him, like, are you a good father? And he's like, I'm a good provider. And to me, like that was just like, man, I don't want that to be me with my kids is like dad made a lot of money, you know, be like, but he was never home. And, and obviously you've experienced some of that in, in your past. Yeah, I went through that with my two, my two oldest. And now I got a two year old and I'm just the opposite. I'm, my goal is to be the most badass, amazing father to this two year old because the Lord gave me a second chance. Now I have a two, I have a great relationship with my two oldest now who are 24 and 20, but I didn't always, right? But I, I was, I, I was given the opportunity to learn from my failures and my mistakes, and then now it's just, man, it's beyond amazing. So uh, I'd like to dive in a little bit, like what you're doing now, and you mentioned it a little bit briefly, and because we've had some time to spend together, and uh, to to summarize, you know, maybe for for the audience is that the reason you had you know, downfall was you were over levered, you're levered on, you know, land, you're going to go buy more and more parcels. And, and maybe just kind of talk about what led to that downfall. And then how you've changed that model? What is it that you're doing today? How has the model been? And what did you learn and take some of those lessons when you're getting into the, the next go around on land development? Sure. Yeah. So I mean, the biggest thing to try to simplify that took me that, you know, really whooped on me in the Great Recession was I was, I had a bunch of money out, right? Plus I had a bunch of debt, right? So when things turn and values literally tanked overnight, I mean, on paper, I was bankrupt every which way you look at it, just was. And so, and by the way, a ton of guys did go bankrupt, right? Ton of my buddies went under, right? A lot of people committed suicide back then, you know, tons of people. And, and, and the only reason I didn't go bankrupt, it's not because I was any smarter than the next guy, man. It's not. The, the reason I didn't go bankrupt is because I was, I was doing business in numerous states and what happened is, so my, my main town was, was Oregon or city, right? Or our state was Oregon, uh, the Portland metro area back then. And that was my main where most of my, my, my projects were happening. But I was also over in Boise, Idaho. And what happened is Boise, Idaho is more of an urban sprawl market. And where in Oregon, they have what's called a UGB or an urban growth boundary. So they control supply, right? So it's, hard, it's a lot harder for that market to go oversupplied. Now it still can, but it's harder. And so what happened is in Idaho, I got hurt over there about a year, year and a half before anybody else in Oregon was experiencing any type of downturn. And so I took my lickings in Idaho and then I was able to come over to Oregon and start exiting a bunch of my deals before, you know, the shit hit the fan, you know? So that's what saved me. That's the only reason I didn't go under just it, that, just being frank with you. But the biggest thing that took me down back then is, is that I'd closed on land. Okay. And then I would go and develop it. I'd put in all the infrastructure, all the, you know, the utilities, the streets, the street, you know, everything to create a, a finished subdivision or neighborhood that was ready for homes to be built on. And so what happens is when you're in the middle, and by the way, so that you know you have, so like, let's just use round numbers. I'm going to refer to my model that I have today. So let's just use really round numbers. Let's just say a project back then, let's just say I had, let's just use smaller numbers than what's real, but let's just say on a deal, I had a million dollars cash in a deal in order to close on the land and go get an A and D loan, which it was always a lot more than that, but you'll get my point is, is that let's say I had a million dollars capital into that deal to, in order to close on the land and then go and start the construction, start the land development. Well, on top of my million dollars, I also had $3 million of debt, right? Right. So it's like a one to three ratio, basically call it, you know, 30, 33% down on a deal, right. Uh, of capital. And so, but what happens is, like in Idaho, I'm thinking Idaho right now. I think I had those finished lots sold for like, I don't remember what it was, 150,000 a lot or something. Well, I'm right in the middle of building this thing, right? 
and my values tank clearly down to like 60 or 80 grand a lot. Well, now the project's done for. I mean, it's done. And so, but what I did do is I finished the project out and, and got it done. But the big exposure is when you're in the middle of these developing these land deals and then the market turns, you're done for, right? Now, certain guys built them, themselves out of it, right? Built homes and rented them out or whatever. I was never smart. I wasn't that smart. I didn't know that that, I didn't even think of that strategy back then. But so the model today is, what we do is the public home builders, you know, of the of our country, there's many of them, is is that what they need, the biggest reason we have a shortage right now in our country of homes is because builders don't have anywhere to build homes. Okay? They're looking for somewhere to build. So what we do today is we specialize in going and finding land off market that is developable. We take it through the entitlement process or the land use process, or we take it through and we get what's called preliminary plat approval. Okay, so we go through the political approval process and we get it in a pretty little bow. It's now an approved development. And then we sell those deals to our clients. And where, let me show you where this is, this is pretty phenomenal. So remember I used that example a moment ago, I was in the middle of a development, it was a million cash in plus 3 million of debt. Well, let's use that scenario in this new model. Well, it might only, in that scenario, it might only cost me a hundred grand to get it to be an approved subdivision. Un, undeveloped at this point, no construction, but an approved subdivision. So I'm in one-tenth the cash I was when I would actually develop it, okay? Plus, I have no debt up to this point, right? And what, Cody, why don't you have debt? You know, you had to go through that entitlement process and you bought the land. No, 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 no. If there's anything you can learn from me today, just one fucking thing, excuse my language, but one thing, sorry, I start cussing when I get passionate. If there's one thing you can learn from me today is that if you're going to play in the development space, if you're going to pay for a diamond, you got to make sure it's a diamond. And in our space, it's not a diamond until it's approved. And that if I'm going to pay development values for land, there's no way I should ever close on that land without having all the entitlements, all the approvals in place. That's just, unless you're buying it at as is farmland values, okay, which a lot of times you're not, most of, you're usually not because people want the big dollars, is never close without approvals. So what happens is I don't have any debt at this point. My, and, I also, and my buyers are gonna buy it from me at approval. Well, I'm also gonna close on the land at approval. So I do everything double closing, simultaneous closings. I use my buyer's money to pay my seller and then I make my scrape out of the middle. Well, Cody, you mentioned a moment ago that you protect your downside. So that's why you don't have a lot of exposure in this market. You're right. So, well, Cody, you have hundred grand in the deal. You run the risk of losing that hundred grand. Well, do I? So, but here's the thing. When I go and I pre-sell my deals to my buyers early in the process, I get non-refundable earnest money from them. So as long as I don't default, that earnest money is non-refundable. So as long as I get the project approved, okay, that earnest money is non-refundable. On average, our buyer's earnest money at the minimum is, is, is equal to our total capital in, if not three to five times our total capital in. So even in a down market, as long as I still go get the project approved and my buyer walks, me and my fund, let's just say on average, have still 3X our money. Does that make sense? So we don't have exposure. Yeah, that, and uh, let me just re-say that just so, because um, I think there's some, some nuggets. Obviously, I, I think I understand how the entitlement process works. I don't know that a lot of people understand how that process works. So you go tie up land, you go for closer or, you know, some version of closer to the development price, because you're not buying it for raw land or salt farmland, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. And let me stop. You. Let me, let me clarify. Can we clarify something for you there real quick? Is, is that everybody's used to, oh, I go do real estate and I close within 15 to 60 days of contract, right? That's fine. And if a seller comes to me and says, hey, Cody, no, no, I need you to close in 30 to 60 days. No problem at all. I will close in 30 days. But now instead of me putting it into my development division, I'm going to put it into my land bank division. And here's why. Because the only way I'm going to close 
in in 30 days, 60 days, whatever, is if I'm paying as is today's values. So what happens is when I sell to a seller, yeah, no problem, I'll close in 30 days. You're not gonna like the number, but I'll do it. Let's, let's shit, let's, let's quickly run some comps or let's do some values. What is your property worth as is today, as it sits? Well, guess what? I've never had a seller take me up on me closing in 30 to 60 days because, you know, it might be I'm paying them five, eight, 10 times as much money if they let me close at approvals, right? Well then Cody, how do you make any money selling to the builders? I'm in the value add business, people. I'm in the value add business. My clients so appreciate that I dealt with that entitlement process for them. That I, not, that not only did I deal with, because it's, it's a creative space. And by the way, the publics aren't very creative and that's just not how their companies are built. But I, I cut say six, eight, I cut somewhere between on average, nine to 18 months off their timeline as far as their time value money calculator. Plus they didn't have to go through the pain to get it approved. And so where I make my money is in that value add that I took a piece of raw land. And now instead of them having to go through all that and then, you know, and then get it approved, I'm delivering it to them already approved and a pretty little bow ready to go. And so I'm able to make a spread on the development value of the land that I paid the seller versus an approved subdivision or plat, right? Is it, there, there's a difference there through value adds. So anyway, sorry to interrupt, but I want to make sure people know we will close in 30 to 60 days, but the, but you're never going to like the value. Yeah, so lo- let's, let's talk through that. So exactly to your point, Hey, you got 10 acres, 50 acres, hundred acres. I don't know, whatever it is that you're going and buying. And as is value is five bucks a square foot. But then you're coming in and maybe these numbers are making them up. You know, maybe it's a dollar a square foot. So you're going to pay 40,000 an acre. And so you're like, that's as is value is a dollar an acre. However, I can buy it for $5 a foot, you know, for 200,000 an acre or 250,000 an acre when I have approvals in uh, uh, in place. And so a seller, you know, they're like, wow, I get a dollar, 40,000 an acre, or I get 250 when I let you close. And so, but that might take a year or two years or however long that entitlement process is for someone or that particular municipality. But to your point is the market value to the builder is maybe eight or $10 a foot. And so what you've done is you've tied up land, you're gonna go do a lot of sweat equity, the entitlement creatively solving the problem of entitling land, uh, getting the approvals in place, and then you've used your end buyer's capital, down payment earnest money on that $10 a square foot land price, which is oftentimes three to five times more money than you have earnest with the farm owner, ranch owner, whatever that the particular land holders area is. Yeah. So the only thing we don't do is, is that, yeah, between my earnest money with my with the property owner, plus my cost to get through the entitlement process, right? Jurisdictional costs, engineering costs, blah, blah, blah. But yes, those are where my costs lie. And we use our own capital to do that or our funds capital, right? You can, someone can use their own, they can use friends. And I use friends and family for almost two decades, but you know, wherever that capital is coming from, I don't care. We never use our buyer's capital to go do any of that. And here's why. Because remember, most of our clients, if they're going to release the earnest money, they want to take security. They want to take a, a position on title. Well, I don't hold title. So I don't have anything I can give them security on. Now, there's other assets I own that I give them security on. But one thing I learned at a very young age is don't cross collateralize all your stuff. Okay, that can get you in some, some unfortunate situations. And so, uh, so their earnest money just stays in escrow, but it's, but it's just not released, right? And I do, I have students of mine, I have students of mine that may don't have a fund like us or friends and family with money or, or their own money. And so what they're actually doing, and it's one of our ninja moves we teach in our course uh, at Vestrite is using your buyer's money, earnest money, or however you want to structure, you can call it a lot of different things, but using your buyer's money to cover all your costs to get it entitled. 
then you don't have a financial partner. You don't have a fund. You're not using your own capital. You're not using friends and family capital. The reason we don't do that and the way they'll do that, by the way, because I just said, well, Cody, you just said, Cody, they won't do that because they need security. Well, the way you do that is those funds, you don't call it earnest money. What you do is you lower the earnest money amount substantially that goes into escrow. And then what you do is you just have an agreement with the builder, your client, the buyer, where they're going to pay all the costs. So they're now paying all the vendors direct. And so on their books, it doesn't look like they're releasing earnest money with no security. They're just paying the vendors direct. The reason we don't do that is because you lose leverage, right? As soon as you ask your buyer to cover all your costs, now all of a sudden um, they're going to devalue your role and you're not, you're not going to strike as good of a deal. But it's a great plan. I mean, I have one student, Lord willing, he's got, I don't know how many deals going right now. He's going to make, I mean, the latest number he told me was like 32 million in the next 12 to 18 months. And he's using buyer's money to do all his deals. That's, that's such a clever way of doing it. Obviously, yeah, the, the structure of that becomes uh, very important. So like when you're doing a deal, you know what? And I know you, but does like what are what kind of profits are you making on this? You got a hundred thousand that you're entitling, you know, uh, engineering, civil engineers, maybe you know, attorneys, legal meeting with the, the city councils or the town council meetings, and and going through that. So let's say it's on average a hundred grand. Yeah, I mean, so it depends, right? I mean, when I first got started, I mean, we were doing projects that were two, three, four lots. Today, we really don't look at anything that's, unless it's in a real high-end market, because it's all about revenue, the top dollars. But on average, right, we, we don't do anything that's less than 100 lots, right? I mean, we're doing projects that are 100 to 500 lots. So, I mean, there will be certain markets, right, that where the values are so high that we would do a deal that's 50 lots. But for the most part, we don't. And if you, so let's just, in very simple terms, and this isn't, so you first ask, what do we make on deals? So we don't have anything on our books that I'm aware of. Remember, I'm not in the day-to-day -day company, but I don't, I don't have, we don't have any deals on our books that I'm aware of that we will make less than seven figures, right? We had a deal that closed a few weeks ago that I think the top line before investors and you know our fund, before our fund was paid and our fees to do the deal were paid and, um, you know, before, you know, asset managers and all these different things, before the money started getting all split up, I think we, we well, I, I know we, we made over 5 million bucks on the deal. Um, and on that deal, before our fees, you know, our fees to the fund for getting the deal through the process, before our fees, we had like 250 grand cash in that deal. And so I'd say our average deal is, 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 I mean, that was a good one, right? But I'd say our average deal. The top 5%. Before we our want to fees, know about the top 5%, not, not uh, those, uh, the middle 90. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, we, we're pretty, things are, things are good. Things are good. But I mean, I, you know, I'll tell you our simple equation. And right now we're, we are outperforming this. But let me tell you our very basic back to the napkin math formula. Okay we will have three to 500 grand cash into a deal between our earnest money to the seller and um, our cost to get it through the process, right? Three to 500 grand. And we, we will get that three to 500 grand back plus make at least at a minimum a million bucks. So now, like I just shared you with one with you where <laughs> the numbers were a lot different, right? It was 250 and 5 million, but that's our kind of our, kind of our minimum threshold of what a deal has to look like for us to even consider it. Yeah, that's, um, you know, like you said, it can also quickly go the other direction. You know, builders stop buying, you know, now they cancel their contracts and, and, you know, at least you have your, and that's okay. Cause let's say I got three to 500 in. That means that at a minimum, I have three to 500 grand non-refundable earnest money in escrow. Okay, let's take that one deal. Let's take that deal I had 230, 250 grand cash in. You know what my buyer's non-refundable earnest money in escrow Half was? Half a million. It was over okay. a million bucks. So the market crashes, they walk. As long as I don't default, I just 5X my fund's money. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, 
the the walking through the trenches of subprime meltdown, I think you've really taught you some some lessons. I know we're uh, kind of winding down. I want to actually dive in a little bit into you removing yourself from the day to day operations. So, like, what was that process like for you? And, you know, then what has been your experience or what was limiting your performance of your company when you were still doing the day to day? So I came to the realization in 2020. So let's just say uh, two and a half, probably two years ago, realistically, we're middle of 22 right now, that one thing I'm working on, you know, Jake is, is constantly, how do I become more humble? How, you know, how do humility is so powerful and just so, man, it's so good. You know, as soon as you quit blowing smoke and mirrors and trying to pretend or trying to bullshit like as soon as you just commit to the words of authenticity transparency and vulnerability and just be who you are man life becomes so much more fun for one and two man people start trusting you and respecting you and i mean they love that you don't know what the hell you're doing right i mean they they respect you for it because most people will never say it but um so just 2020, I just going through that humility process and, and looking at the size of my company, you know, it was me and two or three people. And yeah, were we making seven figures a year? Yeah. But you know, we were doing, you know, one, two, three deals a year and we just weren't doing anything. And, and quite frankly, it's because, I mean, I'm a visionary, I'm an entrepreneur. So as soon as you ask me to start putting systems in place and hiring people and quite frankly, nurturing people and like, I, I love our team and I, I would do anything for them. I'm loyal, I care, I have their back, but dude, I don't wanna nurture them. I'm not the one that's gonna come around and I, I don't, I love y'all, but I, I'm not the one that's gonna ask you about how your kid's baseball game was. I'm just not, I'm not that guy. And so, because I'm just not a good leader. Right. I mean, I'm a good leader from a visionary standpoint, but I'm not I um, I am a visionary, not an integrator, not an implementer. And I knew that about myself. And so because of that, you now have I integrated, have I implemented before? Yes. Clear back in the McAdam days. I was the one that kind of grew that business. But because I I would I, back then, I'd rather have made a million dollars a year and not have to do anything I don't want to do versus make 40 million a year and hate life. And so I just, because I don't enjoy that stuff, I was always holding the company back because I wasn't willing to go do it. And so, so I started headhunting, took like seven months, had an intense interviewing process, hired a recruiter, ended up hiring a, a phenomenal CEO out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, we moved, relocated a few of our employees there and and you know now we're up to I think 25 employees or something. Which Jake, you know by the way, in our industry you can do a lot of volume with not very many people. And um, and our business has just exploded. The few people that are still there from back when I was running it are happier than they've ever been. Uh, it and, and dude, I'm doing less than I've. It, it's really interesting when you're doing less than the company than you've ever done, but yet you're making more money than you ever could dreamed of but it all started with humility. Well, I think that that's, there's so many people have um, heard that same story from exactly the thing. Like they're like, I feel like I'm in the way at my own company where you're walking around and you're like, they're much better at these things that I used to get like all my value out of. Like I was the guy that talked to the investors or I was the guy that creatively put together the deals and then what you, you find out is when you get out of the way, they're doing a much better job at it, you know? And you're like, wow, that's way better than I would have done it. Uh, that's way better. Or they're actually doing it, right? Where when I was in the way, it didn't get done, right? So, I mean, we're actually doing it. And so there's just our company and just since I, the CEO started February 21. So in the last year and a half, what our company was, I mean, we still are the same foundation as far as our core values and our mission and all that, but like the company's unrecognizable and, and um, yeah, it's been very powerful. Well, I do want to make sure that we, we get a chance to wind this down. I, I, there's, there's, I mean, I know you're an action 
uh, oriented guy. And you mentioned that you've been part of some groups like EO, GoBundance. That's where we, we connected up. But are there other kind of like action items or tactical things that people can do if they're wanting to take some action? You know, making a change in their life. Maybe they're on that workaholic, you know, treadmill. What are some of the first steps that they can take to getting off of that? Yeah, I mean, good question. I mean, obviously, there's numerous books out there. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna throw out some different books to you real quick. Okay, one is the Speed of Trust to help you understand how what what trust is all about and the power of trust. The other ones I'm gonna have you think about or three books I'm gonna give you really quick. Just as far as control is a big topic for me about you giving up control and kind of surrendering. By the way, that's my word for 22 is surrender. To, to surrender myself is um, read a book called um, Letting Go, which Jake, you, you, you probably know what that is. I'm looking for my phone right now. Letting Go. Uh, another one is The Surrender Experiment. And another one is, I'm pulling it up right now, The Unte Untethered Soul, right? Those three books will really help you understand where you are as far as this world and this universe and and um and maybe really help you find some peace in your life because i will tell you until you realize you're not in control until you realize that you need to have faith in something okay is it uh, my faith is in jesus but i mean have safe faith in something i obviously would i like your faith to be in jesus yes but uh, i mean dude i don't care if your faith is in the rock outside like have faith in something to realize you're not in control because here's what i'll tell you i guarantee you you do not have peace in your life unless you're exercising your faith muscle there is an impossible to have peace in your life without exercising your faith muscle. As soon as I find myself at a piece, I can boom, go right over here and realize, okay, I'm not exercising my faith muscle. Pure and simple. So those three books I think will really help you in that area. Speed of trust will help you in, you know, as far as, you know, trust and just how powerful it is and how it's the foundation of, of so many things. And then, um, and then lastly, you know, yeah, of course, get into some masterminds, get into some events, you know, follow some great influences, you know, through social or, you know, whatever. And then, you know, if, if, if anything on this podcast has, you know, or this interview has intrigued you about what I do, then obviously I'm going to pitch, I'm going to pitch my online education company. So, you know, check out vestrite.com. We got a bunch of free content, videos, different things. And if it's something you're interested in, then pursue it. We'd love to be a part of your journey, part of your path. And and we literally, we teach exactly what we do. So we're not one of these guys out there teaching stuff we don't do. We teach what we do. And we've been doing it for 20 years. So, yeah. So that's, uh, we'll put that in the show notes. The uh, vest right is where else can somebody follow you, find you? Maybe they got a deal or something like you know, that. You what might can they bring follow, to you? I mean, maybe you want to follow me personally. Maybe you want to follow me personally, you know? So Cody Bugan. Um, so C O D Y B J U G A N, uh, last name's pronounced Bugan, drop the J. So follow Cody Bugan on Instagram, follow Cody Bugan on Facebook. Um, and literally my, it's at Cody Bugan on both of them. So, and you know, we're dropping content all the time and, and, uh, you know, hopefully some way, somehow, you know, my personal brand or vest, right. We can touch your life in a positive way. And, um, you know, that's why I'm having more fun, Jake, now than ever, is I'm just so focused on impact. And I know we've all heard it a thousand times, but I'll, I'll make it a thousand and one. The less I'm focused on the dollar or building the business or whatever, and the more I'm focused on impact and throwing down the rope and making a difference and all that, you know, the more amazing my life becomes and the more money I make. And it sounds crazy, right? But I'm telling you, I don't... Well, I, I think that there is, there's so many bits of insight and wisdom in that, that this is for the, the people and the audience listening is, you know, you only gather that experience going through, you know, downturns, going through those, those, you know, uh, despair. We didn't get a chance to really dive into some of the things about like what it's like when you're going through that downturn. Like, why were you, why'd you just have cash? Well, 
I'm going to guess, I know where it was for me, is like I was overdrawn on every bank account. So I couldn't even put money in the bank without them taking the money. And so that's why I moved to same thing to just using cash. So obviously it created, you know, things where criminal acts of trying to get money back into the system. And there's, there's just things that you learn from being through that, that is hard to translate. Cody is able to drop some massive, massive nuggets. And also he shares that out there. And I've seen it lots of times in person, but also through Vestrite, the way that he's teaching people to change their lives through opportunities of land deals. And really think about that 10 xing your money or 20 xing your money or even using other people's money, leveraging their money to then potentially even change your life. And that is unbelievable. Go folly, follow Cody Boo. Actually, I try to say Boujon, but it's Bugen. Bugen, Bugen. Yeah, I say uh, Cody yeah. Bugen at all of the places that'll be in the, in the show notes. Put it in, follow him at Vestrite. I appreciate you. Again, this has been a fantastic episode of Passive Wealth Principles. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.